Hello and welcome to the Investor's Guide to China from Fidelity International. I'm Paris Anand, Head of Asset Management in Asia-Pacific and your host as we tour the inner workings of China's markets. In this, our third episode in the series, we're taking a closer look at corporate governance. It's a topic that shot up the agenda for China investors. As Chinese stock and bond markets are added to global indices and more investors discover China's markets, calls for greater transparency from Chinese companies arising. So how far have Chinese corporations come in terms of the way in which they're managed? How much can investors trust the domestic universe of some three and a half thousand listed companies and a bond market that has in a single decade quadrupled in size? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Fidelity Investors past and present. Here in London, I'm with former Fidelity portfolio manager and now senior advisor to the company, Anthony Bolton. Anthony, you worked there between 2010 and 2014. What's your most lasting memory of your time there? I think my most lasting memory is it's such an exciting place. Um, The opening up of China, the changes in China. And China has so many good things about it, but it also has challenges as well. And it was that amalgam working out the positives and the negatives made it really fascinating. And I think it was my final four years of running money, and it was definitely the most interesting four years I had. Joining us from Shanghai are equity portfolio manager Linda Zhou and fixed income portfolio manager Alvin Cheng. Linda, you work with the Shanghai team and you worked in Chinese markets for most of your career. In terms of that pace of change that Antti referred to, do you feel that that stayed the same, slowed down or has in, in fact accelerated over recent years? Yeah, um, I do think that the uh, focus on corporate governance has increased in the past four to five years. Um, the key difference is uh, the listed companies, uh, they started to appreciate and uh, create value for the shareholders because they understand that through that process, it can help them to increase the valuation of their stock uh, versus in the past, they only treat the stock market as a short-term kind of financing tool for them. So it's a very big um, kind of changes in the management incentive, thanks to the uh, um, increasing foreign institutional investors' participation. And Alvin, you've been looking at China's financial markets for almost 10 years. I mean, give us a sense of this rate of evolution on the fixed income side. Yeah, there hasn't definitely been great changes in the fixing market as well. As I joined the market in probably six, seven years ago, there was no default at all. All bonds are supposed to be bulletproof. But starting from 2014, we had the first ever public market bond default. And following by 2016 and 18 and 19, you start to see increasing rate of defaults. Um, these defaults, they are bad for the investor in a way, but generally this helps the market to mature very fast. And this helped to raise the investor's kind of awareness in monitoring the company's governance and operation in a great way. Excellent. Well, great to have you all here on this discussion. Anthony, I want to start with your experience from nine years ago. And and you were working in, in China and Chinese markets in that early phase when the whole economy was shifting from uh, manufacturing to uh, consumption. How did you go about sort of picking the right companies to invest in? Yes, I broadly divided the companies into the state-owned enterprises where the government was the controlling shareholder or the private companies. And my main focus was on the private companies. 
which I thought were the most interesting. They were the, generally the fastest growing, and they were represented in the sort of industries of tomorrow, which were the ones I particularly focused on. So it was sort of uh, technology, it was consumption, and healthcare in particular. You know, both have different characteristics. The challenge in the private companies, which are often the smaller companies, is can you trust the information that you're being given? How did you find the route to gain that trust? Yeah, there was a mixture of things. Obviously, some of these private companies have been around for a while and our team knew them. So I could go off the the confidence that we had because we knew the management and knew the company well. With the newer companies or when we were looking at something maybe that was a new listing, etc., then it was really important to try and uh, cross-check what the management were telling you. In a number of companies, we used to do regular due diligence reports. So third parties did reports for us talking to competitors, ex-employees, etc., about the company. And also one of the things I looked at was where the management were trained and the experience they had. Because I often found if a management, a Chinese management, had been educated in America, maybe worked in America, but then come back to China, they were much more au fait with how things, financial markets in the West work. This was all about taking extra steps around the uh, evaluation of the company and the management themselves to give a sense of building up that overall level of trust. But if, if I if I turn to kind of where we are today, Linda, I mean, do you think that that trust is now easier gained? Are those issues that were relevant maybe 10 years ago that are not relevant today? I think there is always um, a gap, um, to be frank, in, in trust building in, in, in the China market, especially in the Asia market, uh, which is so far, I would say, is still not really market-driven um, because the listing and delisting is not totally market-driven. Uh, we still need a CSRC approval to have majority of the stock listed. That's why there is a so-called share value uh, of each listed company, even you know the business um, went went bad, they can still share, sell that share. So so basically, it means the punishment of making fraud is not big enough to basically get the management or company afraid of that. To kind of avoid that, we really need to be very aware of some of the uh, accounting kind of um, practice uh, in, in the Chinese listed companies. Um, but I think the good news is that again, thanks to the uh, rising foreign investors participating. Participation. Uh, management started to aware that you know uh, once they get a fraud uh, in, in accounting, um, the foreign investors, which is a very big force now, uh, will really put a very big discount on them. Um, you know, in a long term basis. I mean, there's an expression that people have, which is that if you lose the trust of the equity markets, it's inconvenient. But if you lose the trust of the credit markets, it's fatal. So, so Alvin, in terms of, you know, turning to the credit side of things, what is the checklist that you apply as you filter out the good from the bad? So I think disclosure itself is very important to build the trust. It's always a first step to build the trust. But historically, the disclosure has been quite weak for the fixed income market because, as I mentioned, that we don't have quite a lot of default before 2016. So before that, majority of the buyers in the market uh, employs a buy and hold 
strategy. So you can only meet the management during the new issue. And after new issue wise, it becomes exponentially difficult for you to meet the management. So I think when we look at company, we will look at the company that more open, uh, more transparent. And also we will look at the financial statement as well. We will try to look find the anom anomalies in the financial numbers, including the mismatch between their earnings and cash flow, uh, including looking at the quality of, of their asset. So I think these are the ways that would normally um, we use to find the red flags in the companies. And apart from the financials, we also pay quite a lot of attention to the um, connected transaction. Uh, just to clarify, Alvin, what's a, what's a connected transaction? Yeah, so connect transaction is the transaction between two companies with related ownership. So in our fixed income world, you can always see, you can, you can, you can often see a company selling a good quality of asset to its parent or to its subsidiary with an unreasonable amount of money. And then we, if we end up buying bond from one end of the spectrum, which is not benefiting from this, this transfer, then we are worse off being the bondholders of that entity. And if we, if we turn to equities, Linda, what, what are the kind of the red flags that, that you look for? Sure. Besides the connected pandemic transactions um, Alvin just mentioned, uh, we also have um, several typical classic types of um, P&L or um, balance sheet manipulation, especially on the P&L side. So, you know, to avoid that, we actually will more focus on balance sheet and the cash flow, which is relatively more difficult uh, to kind of be manipulated. Uh, we see examples like, you know, a company, they had a lot of cash on balance sheet, but at the same time, they also borrowed a lot of money. Um, companies, you know, enjoying very high growth through the past um, you know, three to five years, um, but they never incur uh, any operating cash flow. And and then also something like controlling shareholder has a, a big part of their share, shares un, under pledged uh, to fund their external activities. So these are very typical examples of red flags we need to be very careful of. If I can add one thing here, because as fixed income investors, we will be very interested in how the, their asset can cover their debt. So we will look uh, really deep into how the asset composition is and how the asset is valued. So if there is a significant amount of goodwill or, or there is many working capital assets, then we will raise concern whether these assets are real or how can how liquidity these working capital assets are. So oftentimes the company hasn't write off a good amount of goodwill as they should, and some receivables can never be received. And it's quite interesting what you both describe, which is that it's taken uh, issues around corporate default or failure to uh, start to change the culture around corporate governance. But what about the government and the regulators? Have they taken action in terms of trying to drive this better behavior from corporates? Yes. So this year, uh, we've seen uh, several initiatives happen. Well, first of all, uh, we saw the Star Board, uh, the, the uh, you know Science and Technology Innovation Board. Uh, it's piloted, uh, which basically changed a lot of uh, rules of existing you know several boards. The key one is the uh, registration system, which means that the company listed company will not uh, have share value. Uh, it's purely on registration rather than uh, CSRC approval. Um, and second, they also improved the delisting rules. You, you probably know that in, in, in the past kind of two decades, it's really, really rare for companies to get delisted uh, in China. But now, um, in the first half of this year, we've already got two companies got an ST, uh, which is 
just after they blow up, you know, with the accounting frauds. So the regulators also take an action um, on these things. Anthony, listening to, to, to Linda and Alvin, I mean, do you, do you sense that a lot has changed uh, since the time that you were looking at the markets? I think things have moved on. When I was looking at the markets, there were these three different areas of the world where Chinese companies were listed. There were the A shares in Shanghai and Shenzhen, the Hong Kong listed companies, and then there were the US listed companies, a lot of them technology orientated. And they all had different characteristics. In those days, actually, some of the NASDAQ listed uh, Chinese companies in America were some of the worst companies that I'd (laughs) ever come across. And I think that that has changed. They've been weeded out, etc. And what Linda and Alvin are talking is a lot about now the A-share companies. And I think the interesting thing is that the corporate governance is coming a long way. But at the same time, that was one of the, 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 the least researched areas, I think, in the world. And therefore, there are great opportunities there because there are not so many people looking at those A-shares as other markets. Yeah, and I think if we look now at the fact of the inclusion of, of A-shares and the growing inclusion of, of A-shares in global indices, do you think that that in itself is going to drive better disclosure and better corporate governance? Um, yeah, I think it's the, the better inclusion. First of all, it will make the A-share companies in a bigger pressure because you know a lot of their existing uh, shareholders, they will, they will raise the request on, on disclosure. And also, I think on the positive side, it's really the uh, foreign um, institutional investor, the aggregate amount they invested in Asia is already higher than the public fund. So, you know, given they are very concentrated, I mean, the foreign institutional investors on, on you know, probably the top 50 to 100 names. So on each stock level, um, the uh, bargaining power like a foreign shareholder has is much, much higher uh, versus, I would say, five years ago. I think it's similar that increasing participation of global investors helping the market and also the domestic com- uh, competitors to become more sophisticated in terms of the, the ESG standard. Let's let's talk about the availability of of information to investors. I mean, Anthony, when you were looking at the market, you know, was the availability of information disclosure was that a step change different from what you were used to in other markets globally? Yes, uh, it, it it was, and I'll give you an example. One of the U.S. listed uh, Chinese companies. It was a men's clothing retailer, and it came to the market and in the prospectus it said it had a thousand stores and a piece of information like that in the West, if it's in a prospectus, it needs to be verified by lawyers. So the company has to prove that it has a thousand stores. Anyway, we were checking out this company and our analyst looked at it and she did a piece of work actually looking on Google Maps, quite simple. And she said, Anthony, um, I can only find about 400 of these thousand stores. I think the number's wrong. And that was an eye-opener to me. Mm. And later I went back and I asked the people who produced the prospectus of this company. I said, well, how did you check it? And uh, they said, oh, well, um, we asked the chairman how many stores he had. And he said a 1,000, so we put a 1,000 in the prospectus. (laughs) I think markets have come on a long way since then. But it just showed how it was then in those days. I mean, what about today, Linda? I mean, is the availability access of information, is it sufficient for you as a as an investor? I, th- I think the, the, the situation Anthony just mentioned is still, I would not say common, but I 
probably will say, you know, it's not 100% resolved yet. For Well, first of all, it's really fast changing. I mean, basically all industries, you know, they've been, there's a lot of disruption happens in, in industries like retailers. So first of all, they will have a lot of changes. You know, may they have a thousand stores last year, probably that could be downsized to 700, 600 this year. And then and, and second, I probably more rely on like my personal experience um, rather than like totally 100% believe the company uh, to really kind of uh, kind of draw uh, investment conclusion. For example, you know, for brands, they claim to sell very well. Uh, you know, we visit the shopping malls on a daily basis. And, and also we travel around China, you know, like so many times a year. Uh, every place we go to, we check some of the uh, store performance. If all of these things add up together, not really reflects what the management saying, we probably need to question ourselves as well. And so, as Linda, you know, you're saying, obviously, one of the key ways to gather information on companies is, of course, with the on-the-ground research. Our Asia editor, Neil Goff, has been catching up with one of our Shanghai-based analysts to hear how corporate governance is evolving in China's healthcare sector. Healthcare is booming in China. The country's population is getting both older and richer at the same time. And this is pushing up demand for everything from pharmaceuticals to insurance to specialist medical services. But investing in the sector brings challenges of its own. I'm joined by Monica Lee, an investment analyst at Fidelity who has covered Chinese healthcare companies, among other sectors, and is based here in Shanghai. We're standing on the campus of Renji Hospital, not far from the skyscrapers of the Pudong Financial District. Uh, Now, this Pudong branch is a sprawling campus surrounded by ultra-modern facilities for every description uh, and practice of medicine. Uh, Basically, we could say this is a model hospital. Is that fair, Monica? Yeah, I would say this is one of the largest hospitals in Shanghai. And being Shanghainese, we're actually pretty lucky because we are surrounded by rich medical resources. Just to give you some figures, in Shanghai, Beijing, um, and other rich provinces, we have 2.5 doctors per thousand population. The national average is 2.2. But when you go down to poor provinces, then the figure goes down to just 1.6 doctors per thousand population. Now, from an investor's perspective, we spoke a, a bit earlier about uh, corporate governance challenges that, that you'll see uh, specifically in the healthcare sector. What are some of the main kind of challenges you see there? Yeah, healthcare, I think it's a very dynamic and diversified space. We have the large SOEs like in the drug distribution and the retailing business. And we also have the private ones in the pharma and biotech space mainly. And those are very different two groups of companies. But for both groups, uh, I think corporate governance is a very important aspect of my research. For example, I look at management quality and capital allocation. Um, For management quality, lots of those companies are nationwide franchises, so we need to make sure that those franchises are in the right hand with uh, quality management um, and with sensible compensation schemes. So just now you you mentioned capital allocation. Could I ask you to give us an example of uh, how you've kind of engaged with companies, the conversations that you've had uh, specific to how they allocate capital? 
I think we mainly focus on dividend policy because that's uh, what we minority shareholder uh, cares about. Some companies, they don't really know what expectations are for their dividend policy, so we engage companies in a lot of discussions and meetings about what our expectations are and what the market might react to different kinds of dividend policy. So that's one example. One big shift for companies in the healthcare sector is this move towards share-based compensation as a way to align kind of management performance uh, with uh, corporate performance. And that's not really just new for healthcare, but it's kind of new for Chinese companies in general. Yeah, yeah. I would say this is a welcoming trend in my sector because previously lots of companies just compensate their management in a fixed salary uh, and that is not a very good um, incentivizing way uh, for management to perform and to deliver superior returns. So now we're seeing more and more companies uh, thinking of uh, share-based compensation. That's great. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Neil. Monica there giving a great example of the importance of of on-the-ground research. Uh, Anthony, when you were doing that work in in China, when you were investing there, did it feel like a lot more sort of heavy lifting in terms of getting access to companies and doing the -the on-the-ground research? Yes, it was. And in those days, particularly the A-share companies were much more difficult to see. They weren't used to seeing investors and the idea of approaching a company direct to try and arrange a meeting was something that a lot of them felt uncomfortable about. I think that has changed quite a bit nowadays. And Alvin, in terms of your process, talk, talk me through how corporate access plays a role on the fixed income side. I think corporate access is also a very challenging perspective of investing in fixed income because there are about 4,000 issuers onshore. Only probably half of them are listed. For the non-listed companies, they normally don't perceive themselves to be public companies. So they don't even have like, a, like, like a, have an IR department. So getting to talk to them is quite important. So you have to find different sources to contact the company. You might try it through the brokers or try to find uh, recommendations from their peers. So we've talked a lot about how China management teams, Chinese management teams, are becoming more sophisticated in the way that they converse with external shareholders. I mean, Linda, can you give us some examples of how, as an equity investor, you've engaged with companies specifically on the issue of corporate governance? We've done um, quite several times trying to, you know, improve the corporate governance practice. Uh, one recent example is um, there was a, a, a very big uh, diary company uh, listed in Asia. They recently uh, issued a stock option uh, for their top management. Um, but the original um, proposal uh, was uh, not really up to our standard uh, because uh, we think the earnings growth target, the threshold, is too low. Uh, ROE threshold is also very low. Um, and then also the uh, uh, the total amount uh, goes to the uh, chairman is very uh, excessive, talking about close to 1 billion RMB in, in the next five years. So we, um, Fidelity, uh, as, a, as a whole, uh, you know, the, I mean, just uh, adding up all the shares we have uh, as a kind of quite significant shareholder, we wrote a letter to the chairman and to request them to revise the proposal, uh, either to reduce the size or to increase the threshold. They actually answered to our suggestion directly. Uh, They reduced the size of that deal by 17%. And they also 
also increase their ROE by 5%. I think that's very interesting, Linda, because I think in my day, five years ago, that wouldn't have, one wouldn't have had that success in changing something. Yeah. So you're seeing results from this engagement process. Yeah, it's. I think again, it's because first of all, uh, we are we are quite big in terms of the holdings, uh, and then the, because of this deal, they need to be got uh, uh, two thirds of uh, shareholders' approval, minority shareholders' approval. So we do play a quite significant part in that voting process. So management structures and the way that corporate control is distributed within companies have clearly been in the spotlight in China of late. Last year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange announced that it would begin to allow dual-class share listings in part to better compete with the likes of the New York Stock Exchange, which famously won the listing of the tech giant Alibaba in 2014. China's Nasdaq-style star board, as, as Linda spoken about in Shanghai, is preparing to follow suit and allow weighted voting rights. So what does this mean for investors? Investment director Catherine Young has been taking a look at the implications of this and how outside investors should be thinking about the way that Chinese companies are managed. Competition between global exchanges has never been so fierce. Not that you'd actually know it. I'm at the London Stock Exchange. It's a relaxed Friday afternoon and workers are certainly grabbing an early lunch and beginning to slip into the weekends. With me is Jen Hoy Tan, Fidelity's Head of Sustainability. Jen, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Jen, can you please briefly explain these moves around dual-class shares or weighted voting rights, and in particular, what it tells us about the direction of travel for corporate governance in China? So let's start with what are dual-class shares. So this is a structure that arose in the United States, and the idea is that you give the founders of the business a larger share of the voting rights relative to their economic ownership of the company. This enables founders to continue to control their businesses through superior voting rights long after they may have become a minority economic owner in their businesses. This, from our perspective, is a negative for corporate governance because it reduces our ability to hold management to account. Exchanges, like all other listed companies, are competitive animals and they are looking to attract the best and most innovative companies to list on their own exchanges. And offering this kind of regulatory flexibility is seen as a competitive advantage. China is signaling to the world that its exchanges are now ready to compete with the great global exchanges out there. Now, Jen, we've spoken about these innovative companies who are beginning to list on the starboard, but what about the state-owned enterprises, or in fact, the state involvement in China? It plays such a big part of the corporate landscape. For example, having party members being on boards, etc. So what does this mean for corporate governance, and how should investors be thinking about this? So I think we need to take a little bit of a step back and recognize that the interaction between the public sector and the private sector in China is very different than the model that we are used to in the developed world. So when you think about state-owned enterprises, it is very important to think about how Chinese national policy could potentially affect the conduct of the business of these uh, enterprises. But to recognize that in some cases, these could be beneficiaries 
as minority shareholders of these changes in state policy. Gree Electric Appliances, the world's largest manufacturer of air conditioning units and now a growing leading provider in this new Internet of Technologies uh, products. They have always paid out a very consistent dividend, recognizing the value of minority shareholders and private capital in growing their business. So when we look at companies like Gree and the focus on minority shareholders, you know, in a sense, we are seeing Chinese companies really taking step forward in terms of engaging with shareholders on a range of issues. Uh, would you agree with this? And what are some of the issues you're actually seeing? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with this. I think at the ground level, at the individual corporate level, we're seeing Chinese companies being much more proactive about engaging with their shareholders on governance and indeed on broader sustainability and ESG issues. A good example of this is Alibaba. And they published uh, their first ESG report last year, which focused very much on the role of succession following Jack Ma's retirement, and also on their plans to use technology to combat the proliferation of counterfeit goods on their platforms. Now, before I let you go, Jen, just a quick view, please, in terms of outside of China, but staying within the region, what's corporate governance like in terms of, you know, Singapore or even Hong Kong? So I say in, in, in both Hong Kong and Singapore, corporate governance levels are much more akin to what we'd expect to see in a normal developed market. But they both have uh, the same things in common, which is that when you invest in Asian companies, typically you're investing in a controlled corporation, either that controlled by the state, by the family or by a wealthy individual. So as always, when we invest in these companies, what we want to ensure is that our, our interests are aligned with their interests. And we think that as long-term shareholders, we can benefit the most from their long-term focuses on their business. Thanks so much for joining me today. So we've heard Catherine and Jen talking there about the state's presence in business. How did you see that element play out in your time in China, Anthony? I think it was terribly important to know that China was different in this respect, that if something came up against the state's interests, then you had to take that into account. And it was often the competitive landscape of the domestic companies competing against the international companies. So in an industry like healthcare, that was very common. So you had to take those dynamics into account when you evaluated the companies. And what about from a credit rating perspective, Alvin, how did that state ownership play a role in, in how does, or does it play a role in your evaluation? Uh, surely it plays a very important role in our valuation. So state-owned enterprises actually are the largest issuer group within the market. Um, different from privately-owned enterprises, when we're actually looking at state-owned enterprises, we do not only look at a financial creditworthiness, we also look at their relationship with the government. More than often, we can see that their refinancing capability do not only re rely on their financial statement, but also on their closeness with the government. By that, we mean their ownership structure with the government, and more importantly, their strategic role in the respective operating region. So the company that with great importance in strategic function and also in employment, sometimes when they face issues like default or liquidity pressure, they are more likely to get helped by the local government. But also an abrupt change of management in state-owned enterprise can be dangerous in a way because most of times the financial institutions will kind of rely on this relationship with its core management. And after the 
um, change of top management, um, investigations on governance and on corruption may start. And in that cost, the support from financial institutions can fall back. That sometimes can cause liquidity or refinancing problems for these state-owned enterprises. So they are quite different from the private-owned entities. And I think one of the points that really came out in, in Jen's piece is that actually you know, that structure of the Chinese corporate sector is not really going to change fundamentally. So, so Linda, how do you think about this, both in terms of the negative and the positive aspects of it? In equity side, in general, the uh, SOEs, the, 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 the government-related um, companies, they, they're treated at a discount, uh, largely because, first of all, the management usually lacks of incentive. And secondly, usually these are quite policy-heavy industries, so less market-driven. You know, there is a theme of SOE reform has been talking about for a very long time. Um, but sadly, we so far, the progress is still relatively limited. Um, in terms of the, uh, the party's involvement in, in SOEs, I, I don't really think there is like a too significant impact because most of the uh, kind of uh, committee members, they are senior management anyway, so there is no uh, management changes. Uh, they probably will impact their the employees' productivity uh, because there could be a lot a lot of uh, you know party related activities. But most of the formats uh, are happen like uh, you know team building. So on a positive side, it's also kind of help improve the relationship among the employees. So look, we've, we've talked a lot in, in this session about the journey of corporate governance in Chinese companies and by Chinese management teams over the last sort of 10 years. But if I could ask you all to try and sort of cast your eye forward another 10 years, where do you think we'll be in terms of the corporate sector in China from a corporate governance perspective? Anthony? Well, I think if you look in the trend in other markets, and I remember when I first looked at some of the markets in continental Europe, they were way behind what was happening in the UK and the US. I think China will be up there and be very similar to all the other global markets. Linda, would you echo that view? Yeah, um, I think so. Um, and, I, and I particularly think that maybe in the next five to 10 years, the process and will speed up, um, you know, thanks to the trade tensions or trade dispute, um, it really kind of urges China to open up more on the financial side. Um, so, you know, um, getting more uh, foreign institutional investors come in is, is, is inevitable. So I think that will help uh, the corporate governance to improve. Yeah, I, I think I agree with uh, Anthony and Linda. I definitely see an improving trend, especially in the disclosure part that I mentioned. We've already started to see the disclosure part of the debt issue improving in the market. I think that's also driven by the fact that due to the slowdown of China economy, uh, debt issuance has becoming more and more difficult. So to make your debt to be able to attract more investors, you have to be more willing to communicate to investors. You have have to be more transparent. And how quickly are we going to see these changes, you know, taking place? Is it is it a 10-year journey or do you think it happens sooner than that because of the the impact of the markets owning up and opening up and, and, and all of these other related points? I don't think it will take as long as 10 years. I think China is a market that always adapts very fast and people are very quick to learn. So I think from my own 
uh, perspective, uh, several things are driven for this change is actually the increasing penetration of global investors, the stepping up of regulators, and also the increasing awareness of the company owners at home. So I think this will shorten this period. So I think probably in the next two to four, two to five years, we can definitely see great changes in my perspective. So I would agree with Alvin. Nearly everything that I've seen in China, when you expect it to happen in a certain length of time, it happens in half that time. Yeah, I cannot agree more, Anthony.、Uh, we've seen that process happened already in the past、uh, two to three years. Uh, uh, I mean, especially after the MSCI inclusion. So, if you use MSCI's inclusion as a proxy of the foreign flows into China, that I mean, the the highest slope, the steepest slope, probably will be the next two to three years. So we're clearly on a journey with the corporate sector in China, where the pace of change is clearly not letting up, and the development of corporate governance is improving, and probably improving at a pace that would surprise many outside observers. Having said that, it is important to kind of acknowledge that the structure of Chinese companies, the role that the state plays in the corporate sector, is different, and that's that's likely to, to to stay the course. But I think what's been really encouraging out of this conversation is just learning. That That actually, minority shareholders have a significant role to play、uh, in its evolution. That brings us to the end of our show today. So, I would like to thank my studio guests, Anthony Bolton,、uh, Linda Joe, and Alvin Chang, and to our other contributors, Monica Lee and Jenwei Tan, and Catherine Young. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, then please rate us on your podcast app. And if you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website. Our producers were Seb Morton Clark and Neil Goff, and the editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from Fidelity's London and Shanghai studios, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website: professionals.fidelity.co.uk/about-fidelity.